Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 49, where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and by tuning in your chimichanga. Hmm, I knew you could tune a fish, but I didn't know you could tune a chimichanga. That's right. <laughs> Today um, we're going to be discussing Deadpool number 11, cover date December 1997. It's a very special issue that discusses great power and great coincidence, <laughs> which is why it's called With Great Power comes great coincidence written by and these are <laughs> these are pretty uh common uh credits for a joe kelly written book he uh likes to put nicknames and, and silly stuff in there so we've got uh, written by joe marty mcfly kelly penciled by pete hg wells woods inked by nathan time traveler massengill al time by seiko milgram and joe space warp senate uh colored by chris sagan sotomayor Lettered by Richard Timecop Starkings and Comicraft. And this issue is based on Amazing Spider-Man number 47, cover dated April 1967 by Jan- John, by Stanley. I, I was mixing their names That's here. right, John and Stan Romita, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Stanley and John Romita the first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it came, this is 1997, right? And it came with a cover price of $3.99. Yeah, it, it seems high to me, but... <laughs> it is. This is an oversized issue. It is, it is. 64 pages, so it makes a little bit it's of sense. Two ads. That's right. That's right. Two ads. So uh, that's why they've done it. But anyway, uh, we'll do a little creator bio for you, as usual. And uh, don't have a ton of information about these fellas, uh, as usual, more on the writer than the artist. But we do the best we can. Uh, Joe Kelly was born November 15th, 1954. He received his MFA at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, and at NYU he was recruited into Marvel Comics editor James Felder's Stanhattan Project, a program that trained potential comic book writers at the university. Kelly says, James Felder and Mark Powers, both editors at Marvel at the time, wanted to find some new writers, as it was often lamented in the office there were no such people around. So they they contacted New York University's dramatic writing program at the Tisch School of the Arts, where I happened to be a graduate assistant, to set up a workshop with the intent of finding some warm bodies. I helped organize the program, hoping to weasel my way into comics, or at least to meet some bona fide professionals in the field. Over the next few months, I got to know Mark and James, and they got to know my writing style. Next thing you know, it's February, and James calls my house, asking me to script over Carl Kiesel's plot on Fantastic Four 2099, number 5. The rest is here history. Uh, Kelly took the assignment, but his first published work for Marvel was 2099 World of Tomorrow 1 through 8 and Marvel Fanfare Volume 2, number 2 and number 3 in 1996. In 1997, Kelly began his first monthly assignment, Deadpool, initially penciled by Ed McGuinness, and eventually got to issue 11, where we are today. Hey, uh, across the table, we got Pete Woods. We're, we're guessing he was birthed of a woman at some point. Um, so, yeah. He seems like, he seems like a real me- person from pictures. So, yeah, he had to I, be yes. born. He exists in the world. <laughs> Might have a belly button. Um, as a kid, Pete used to watch the old George Reeves Superman series and the uh, Batman series with Adam West. Uh, one day, his mother bought a copy of the fant- uh, famous first edition of Action Comics number 1. This is in 1974. And he knew from then that he wanted to draw comics for a living. 
Woods worked as an intern for Wildstorm Comics in April 1996 under artist and imprint owner Jim Lee. Uh, This is where he got his first major comics work, uh, filling in on Stormwatch and Wetworks in 1996. Uh, He'd also get a short run on Backlash in 1997. He'd move over to Marvel Comics to draw a few issues of Excalibur before starting a critically acclaimed run on Deadpool with Joe Kelly. And uh, wouldn't you know it, he drew the issue we're going to discuss today, too. Hey, very convenient that we talked so much <laughs> about him. Uh, so let's tell you a little bit about Deadpool. His first appearance was in New Mutants number 98. That was February 1991, created by Rob Liefeld and Fabian Nicieza. Uh Rob Liefeld will admit to that if you ask him also. If he might. Yeah, he might admit to it. Real name is Wade Wilson. No relation to that other fella, except if we're talking about Earths 3. Kind of? Sort of? Sort of, they sort of yeah. threw him in the name. Fabian Nicieza recalls seeing in the initial sketches, costume design, and character bio for Deadpool, then calling Rob to inform him that he just created Deathstroke from the Teen Titans. <laughs> it was Nicieza who gave him the Wade Wilson name. Though Rob admits Deadpool was at least inspired by Deathstroke, but also Spider-Man and Wolverine, and... Inspired is very generous. Uh, <laughs> Rob says what Danny DeVito's character was to Arnold Schwarzenegger's character in Twins, Deadpool was intended to be to Wolverine. There you go. Um, and about the uh, the Earth 3 thing, uh, in Superman Batman Annual Number 1, uh, they actually redid the... Uh, the first uh, meeting or the first discovery of Batman and Superman's alter egos to one another and they uh, they had it on board a cruise ship where Deathstroke was trying to take over or do something uh-huh. and uh, then Deathstroke's counterpart from Earth 3 showed up and it was a very familiar fellow who never said his name mm. <laughs> but that was also written by uh, by Joe Kelly with art by Ed McGuinness so he was, he was, they were having a good time with it That's yeah good. they were having a larf yeah. uh, now Back to Deadpool. He was originally depicted as a straight-up villain. Uh, He appeared in the uh, successor to the New Mutant series, X-Force. He'd also rattle some cages in the pages of Avengers. This is the uh, Bob Harris bomber jacket era of the Avengers, Mm -hmm. as well as Daredevil. Uh, He's a disfigured former member of U.S. Army Special Forces, a former cancer sufferer, and former Weapon X experimentee. Uh, That's where he'd get his powers. And, uh, you know, despite his affiliation with the X-Men and the X-Groups, Deadpool is not a mutant. Um, He would receive a pair of miniseries in the mid-'90s, The Circle Chase, and a self-titled one. The Circle Chase ran four issues from August through November 1993 and was written by Fabian Nicieza with art by Joe Majuara. Uh, the second mini also ran four issues, also August through November, but 1994. This one was written by Mark Wade and had art by Ian Churchill. Uh, it seems that Wade didn't really do his homework beforehand because he recalls, Frankly, if I had known Deadpool was such a creep when I agreed to write the miniseries, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> Someone who hasn't paid for their crimes presents a problem for me. Well, too bad. Uh, In 1996, (laughs) in the wake of the Onslaught event, Marvel outsourced the production for a handful of titles to Rob Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee. We've discussed this a few times before, and we continually threaten to dedicate an entire episode to it, but this is that Heroes Reborn initiative. Uh, The heroes were shifted into a pocket universe, uh, essentially to give them a little shot in the arm, I think. Uh, the titles shifting out of house were Avengers, Fantastic Four, Iron Man, and Captain America. To fill the void left at the House of Marvel, both in and out of the comics, Marvel launched a handful of new or revived titles. They included Thunderbolts, Alpha Flight Volume 2, Kazar Volume Whatever, <laughs> uh, Quicksilver, Maverick, 
these are, these are really the hottest were well, these the hottest books of the time or what oh, big time. Uh, yeah. another go at Marvel team up and, <laughs> and Deadpool yes um, <laughs> now there is a special gimmick to this issue that they called gumping uh, so if you remember the movie Forrest Gump uh, and you remember how they were able to edit Tom Hanks character into existing news footage right. like they'd have him like shaking hands with Kennedy or I think he was standing next to Elvis for a period there sure, yeah. uh, it would give the, it gave the impression that Forrest was really there and was really part of this history well in Deadpool number 11 Marvel sought to do something similar with the mark with the mouth here using a classic issue of Amazing Spider-Man as a base and then they gump Deadpool in. Uh, this adds a whole new layer to the idea of time travel in the Marvel Universe and also serves to create a uh, silly little story. Right. Uh, to our knowledge, this experiment has, hasn't been tried again. Uh, though we really, After reading it, we really can't figure why yeah. they wouldn't try something like this again. We'll jump in, but it, it's a really it's a fun, cute little thing, especially sure. with a classic issue, they have familiarity. You know, they do, and they do this with Deadpool quite a bit, where they Put him in old style comics. Uh, mm -hmm. They'll have him interact with Iron Fist or you know whatever, or in an old World War II Captain America adventure, but not to this extent. It'll just be kind of like sure. in this that style. Uh, yeah, I would love to see them pick up some more classic issues and worm Deadpool in, or maybe even <laughs> other characters. Anyway, on to the issue, Deadpool number eleven. This covers an homage to Amazing Fantasy number fifteen, with Deadpool taking place of Spider-Man and Weasel. And we'll talk about him later taking the place of the random hood that Spider-Man is carrying on that cover. Title page is an homage to the poster for the movie Forrest Gump starring Tom Hanks. Deadpool is wearing a white suit while sitting on a park bench instead of a box of chocolates. He's got a large gun next to him. And if you've seen the cover, you want to look it up, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Even the title is done in the Forrest Gump style with great power. Covers yep. great coincidence. Uh, the issue proper begins with some overblown exposition from The Watcher. Which is the only kind of exposition he knows uh, Something on Earth requires his full and immediate attention Something having to do with May Parker and Deadpool It's uh, Deadpool and blind Alfred are soaring through a psychedelic wormhole Yeah, Deadpool says Note to self Next time some hippie asks you to lick anything at a dead concert Just say no <laughs> Uh, Blind Alfred, by the way, he's sort of Deadpool's prisoner. It's really a complicated story. She's sort of a willing prisoner at times, but as her and as her name would suggest, she's blind and she wears oversized, like blind person Big glasses. Shades, yeah, yeah. shades. Uh, <laughs> Joe Kelly originally intended her to be revealed to be the original Black Widow, but that didn't come to fruition. She was a close pal to Captain America before he got himself frozen. So there's that, you know, connection there. Her first appearance in, is uh, Deadpool, first the first ongoing, number one, in uh, January 1997, and she was created by Joe Kelly and Ed McGuinness. She also bears a kind of, sort of, kind of resemblance to Anne May, which is worth mentioning, because... Well, that wormhole opens right above Aunt May, and the pair fall right on top of her. Blind Owl says, Where the heck are we, Wade? What happened to us? Strip search me <laughs> on, on second thought, scratch that The mental picture is way too disturbing Come on, let's get Jessica Tandy inside Before the neighbors see us disposing of Miss Daisy uh, Blind Al uh, Inside, Blind Al holds a compress To Aunt May's head If I ever get to the doddering old Biddy stage, I wholly Expect you to take me out back And put me out of my misery Shoot you And miss the laugh right of adult undergarments I think not <laughs> 
Deadpool asks Al to keep the old Biddy company while he teleports back to Hell House in San Francisco. Uh, Hell House is sort of a dispatching center for Mercs. First appeared in Deadpool number one, again, the first ongoing. He ports back, however, it's not Hell House he finds. Instead, it's Sister Margaret's home for wayward girls. Yeah, he goes, it finally happened. I've snapped. Taking a dive into the drool pool. Probably lying in a rat-infested sanitarium somewhere with a full bedpan. Getting a sponge bath from Chloris Leachman. Hey, you deaf Sandy Duncan, take your skin tights out of here. <laughs> Sandy Duncan? <laughs> so do we make do we make a Peter Pan joke or a glass eye joke? I think how about why are they calling him Sandy Duncan joke? That really came out of left field. Especially <laughs> from a especially from a little girl, but alright. A little girl. <laughs> now anyway, now this would mean that Deadpool and Alfred didn't just port to Queens, they ported to Queens in the past. Ooh. Back in the present, we join Weasel, and we'll get to him in a bit. And the Great Lakes Avengers. Then they're trying to figure. <laughs> they're trying to figure out what what's going on with Deadpool's disappearance. And uh, Doorman, he's a GLA member. His present state of agony, agony. <laughs> now, Weasel comments that Doorman used his power the same time Wade activated his teleporter on his belt which resulted in a conflux, which sent Deadpool and Al careening through time. Uh, he also mentions that there was a strange rainstorm that's kind of altering his findings, and that ties in with uh, Heroes Reborn, the Return miniseries, which brought the Fantastic Four and the Avengers back to the mainstream Marvel Universe after a year in Image Founders Land. So it's all right in continuity, folks, if you want, if you want it to be. Sure. Uh, while the GLA and Weasel bicker, Doorman vomits a viscous purple fluid all over them. Flatman inspects the upchuck. Yeah, he notices. Uh, he notices that there's a uh, bits of something in there, and he says, "These these Farragamo platform pumps, circa 1967, came out of Doorman along with the temporal goop." Now, Salvador Farragamo is a brand, uh, quite quite expensive women's shoes, available at your local Nordstrom if you've got an extra five hundred dollars. Uh, yeah, the rest of the Great Lakes <laughs> Avengers mock him for studying fashion in college because that was the thing at the time, folks. Mm-hmm. Weasel, by the way, is Deadpool's sort of sidekick. Uh, he brokers information, handles arms, inventions, and technical stuffs. Real name, we'll get there in this very issue, in fact. <laughs> First appearance was Cable Number 3, July 1993, created by Fabian Nicieza and Joe Maduera. Maduera? Maduara. Maduara, thank you. Back to the past Wind Alfred is mystified by the odd television programs Deadpool may be fruity as a loon But I know I'm not senile So either every channel on this stupid TV Is set to Nick at Night Or I'm listening to shows from the bloody past For those who don't know Nick at Night used to show old television programs That's right It's important to mention (laughs) Deadpool returns And the uh, two sort of figure that they're stuck somewhere in the past Uh, Deadpool asks the one question you should never ask aloud when in an uncertain situation. What else could go wrong? What else indeed? It just so happens that right at this very moment, Beastial bad boy Kraven the Hunter is fresh out of the clink and on the prowl. He's out to defeat Spider-Man, but first he wants to take down the Green Goblin, who he's upset to learn is believed to be dead. No bother, though, if he can't extract his pound of flesh from the Goblin, he'll take it from Goblin's flunky, Norman Osborn. Hey, but that is <laughs> no, not, not yet, not yet uh, Back at Aunt May's, Wade and Alfred get metaphysical with their conversation Until Wade realizes there might be a few benefits to hanging around in the past 
Hey, if I can get a little from a future cast member of Baywatch before they're famous, who's really going to know, right? Get me a phone book. Look up Anderson with an A. <laughs> a couple of Ds, really. And Al's not digging this line of thinking one bit. She says, we're going to destroy the world. I just know it. And before they can think too hard about it, they're interrupted by a ring of the doorbell. Yes, it's uh, Anna Watson. She goes, May, hey, it's Anna Watson. I'm here to pick you up. Oh, my. I hope the poor dear hasn't suffered another fainting spell. She's so fragile. Now she's not getting a reply, so Anna prepares to enter the house. But little does she know that when she does, she just might find herself staring into the business end of one of Wade's pistols. But first, let's check back in on the present. The GLA are still joking about Flatman studying fashion. Get used to that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they then call upon him to explain the science behind the time stream. And then as he starts discussing the time stream, <laughs> they proceed to ignore his reply. His entire spiel consists of blah, blah, blahs. Yeah, I like that. It just sort of turned into blah, blah, blahs yep. as he was talking over, you know, in the end, it was all blah, blah, blahs. <laughs> Uh, back in May Parker's place, Alfred talks Deadpool out of killing the old broad on the other side of the door. She has a better idea. And it's a good thing because Anna is not waiting. Mm. She goes, May, I'm coming in. The door slowly creaks open. Oh, hello, dear. Didn't you hear me? Ahem. Uh, hello, uh, Anna. I was taking a nappy. I have a touch of the flu, you know. Oh, you poor thing. Let me in and I'll fix you up some soup. Uh, no. Uh, the doctor says it's contagious. I'll see you late. That's all right. I have rubber gloves in my purse. Who is this broad, June Cleaver? Now, Anna, as we can tell, is not taking no for an answer. And even goes as far to offer May a foot massage. <laughs> very, very unusual. <laughs> yes. Foot massage? Good heavens. I, look, I tried to be nice, but get off of my property before I call the cops. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> now, while, while Alfred tries to keep Anna out, Deadpool has a look around. The entire wall is framed photos of his eventual pal, Peter Parker. Uh, they weren't tight as of yet. Uh, to be honest, the Deadpool title was constantly being threatened with cancellation, and he really didn't socialize with the greater Marvel Universe, if you could believe it. Also, uh, copies of New Mutants 98 actually did grow on trees back then. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Deadpool goes, look at all these purdy pictures. wonder who this kid is. Scrawny little geek. Tried doing a push-up or something. Now, finally, they answer the door. However, by this point, Deadpool has taken the guise of young Peter Parker. Why, it's May's one and only nephew, Peter Parker. You were here the whole time? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I was upstairs in the bathroom trying to figure out how to shave. You know how it is. Peter, what's going on? Why do you sound so different? My voice is just changing. Puberty, you know. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's why it's yeah. a gravelly-voiced, uh, you know, <laughs> burn victim. Sure. That's what happened to me. By the way, the uh, you know the way he's able to assume Peter's guys is with like a holographic projector. So yeah, it's, a little it's projector. seamless. It looks perfect. Don't don't worry. <laughs> so uh, he's able to convince Anna that Blind Alfred is Aunt May, claiming that if she's acting peculiar, it's due to her medication. Just as the ladies are leaving, a small portal opens for the park in the Parker home, and Weasel's arm is hanging out of it, and it's holding a note. In the present, we see Weasel plunging his arm into Doorman's chest, and they make a few more gay jokes about Flatman. Back in the past, Deadpool reads the note. Weasel's note reads, Dear Deadpool, if you're reading this, then you're in the past. No duh, right? 
we got a guy here who says all we got to do is coordinate the activation of the two teleportation units at the same time. And Doorman's portal will stabilize, allowing you to come back. So activate your belt at midnight tonight, and we'll coordinate the rest from here. Deadpool holds up his broken teleporter belt and goes, <laughs> broken. This is so cool, isn't it? See you soon, weasel. Now, Deadpool is beside himself with worry. Without a working belt, he's doomed to remain in the past. He proceeds to yell at and threaten the Peter Parker photo shrine. <laughs> Until he notices something interesting. In the photo of Peter's science club, or nerdathon, if you will, uh, Peter is standing next to a younger version of Weasel. Hmm, Deadpool needs to figure out a way to pull Peter out of the picture so he can chum it up with young Weasel. He also notices that Pete's quite the shutterbug and concocts a plan. He suits up in some of Peter's best duds, which look like a regulars from the Han Solo collection, and he heads down the block, and he walks past a ranting Craven the Hunter. Nice duds, Kazar. That's messed up. <laughs> uh, Craven heads into Norman, Norman Osborne's office, but he's sent away. Old Corn Rose ain't in at the moment. Uh, Raven, Craven heads home to his trophy room, where he monologues about his defeat at the hands of Spider-Man, blaming it all on Spidey's enhanced speed. He then reveals his double-barreled ray that will negate the speed. The rays shoot out of his vest at around nipple level. Uh, I know I'd be stunned if I saw that, Chris, coming at me. Yeah. We'd be like, what is, I don't need the nipple ray. That's scary no. stuff. <laughs> now we finally join Peter. This is the real Peter. Mm -hmm. He's on the campus of Empire State University. He's deep in thought, and it's some wild thought, man. Yeah, he thinks, man, what a totally groovy day. I just don't want to jinx it, but I think that the bluebird of happiness has finally landed on Peter Parker's shoulder. My new digs in Harry's apartment are fab. There's going to be a hit party tonight at Gwen Stacy's. His thoughts are interrupted by a ringing payphone, which after a brief internal struggle, he decides to answer. On the other end of the line is Deadpool, and he's got a hot tip on some Spidey business out in New Jersey he can take some pictures of. Uh, with Parker out of the way, Deadpool is able to attend some classes. We see that Weasel, whose real name is Jack Hammer, <laughs> yeah, sure. is a star pupil and uh, even, you know, wise enough to correct the teacher from time to time. Deadpool sidles up to him and, hey there, Weasel, what's shaking? What? What did you call me? Parker? Of all people, I hardly expect you to resort to name-calling. You think that just because half the Cretans in school call you Puny Parker, you should join in on the fun? Jeez, testy little puby, ain't ya? Uh, Deadpool apologizes and tries to get Jack to take a look at his high-tech belt. He also futzes with some dials on Weasel's, Weasel's experiment for Osborne Chemical. Their chat is interrupted by Harry Osborne, who says, Hey, Daddy-o! Ah, oh, crap, what now? What's the scam, Hipcat? I thought I found you singing with the squares. What? Hanging with the hard cases. Excuse me? Rapping with the rubes. Are, are you having a seizure? Speak English. For pity's sake, what is up with that hair? And then Harry uh, tries to sweep Deadpool away, or Peter, away so they can style up their apartment. Deadpool is hesitant, remember, but however, remembers Blind Al's sage words of advice. Wait! Whatever you do, don't <laughs> up the time stream. And so, Deadpool leaves with his oddly quaffed roomie. By now, young Weeze has refused to help him uh, repair the teleporter belt, 
Oh, yeah, and the machine he was working on explodes because Deadpool was fussing with them dials. Uh, we rejoin Blind Al, who's at the Watson home, and Mary Jane arrives. Have no fear. MJ is here. Mary Jane, how sweet of you to drop by to help. A sweet Christmas. This chick is dizzy as a merry-go-round. And to further prove that, in the very next panel, Mary Jane is dancing in the living room. Did she just start dancing? So young to be involved with the crack. Anna suggests May call Peter to let him know MJ's in the house. And she does. Peter, it's your auntie. Get me the hell out of here. I mean, ten minutes ago. Al, thank God. You'll never guess what's happening. Parker's roommate just asked me to sharpen the point on his head. You think that's bad? Anna's niece just showed up and she's dumb as a post. Between the two of these broads, I couldn't get enough brain power to toast bread. And yeah, MJ is still dancing. Uh, while Peter and May gab, uh, Harry goes to answer the no a knocking at the door. I better see who's at the door. I'd hate to keep Sophia Loren waiting. Or would you believe Captain Kangaroo? Yeah, not very good. Alan struck Deadpool <laughs> to get Weasel to a party MJ was talking about tonight. So she, so he can light him up enough that he'll fix the belt. Harry answers the door, and it's Papa Norman. Deadpool is shocked to discover that two people have the same hair. Just wait till he meets Sandman. That's right. <laughs> uh, while the Osborne fellows catch up, Deadpool slips out to visit with young Mister Hammer, who is certain who is certain that Pete, quote unquote, purposely sabotaged his experiment earlier. A Deadpool approaches and tries to make peace. However. Their chat is interrupted. People are getting interrupted a lot today. Definitely a theme in this comic, I'd say. Uh, as I was saying, their chat was interrupted by ESU's most eligible bachelorette, Gwen Stacy. And they're all formally invited to the shindig, even Jack. Yeah, Gwen goes, sounds groovy. Will you be bringing a date, Jack? Me? Uh, uh, no. Sure, you will, Jack of Hearts. Your chemistry set counts, get it? I really, I really don't get it. It really wasn't a joke. I don't, doesn't, that wasn't, no. I, doesn't make that any wasn't sense. <laughs> that wasn't a joke that happened. No. Um, Deadpool thinks to himself, I wonder if I, if I disembowel Harry but hook that hair up to life support, would anybody really notice? I definitely wouldn't. As, Probably not. As Gwen slinks off, Deadpool admires her can and refers to it as shaggerific. <laughs> this is a late 90s comic. Uh, you have to, there are some <laughs> contextual references. Uh, Deadpool tries to chat up Weasel, saying he did him a solid, getting him an invite to the orgy of the year. So at least he can do is look at his port belt. But he's too busy mentally matching his clothes. Meanwhile, in Bayonne, Spider-Man is swinging and searching for whatever trouble that silent witness called in with. Meanwhile, again, in Westchester, Kooky Craven is still on the hunt for Norman Osborn. Meanwhile, again, again, in Forest Hills, Aunt May stirs from her slumber, but triggers a strange Rube Goldberg ghost made out of underwear. And that scares her back into her comatose state. <laughs> I really like that scene. Uh, <laughs> later, our trio of boys are headed for their party. Along the way, they see Gwen Stacy and Deadpool makes with the sweet talk. She either doesn't understand it or really smells what he's cooking. Either way, she plays along. Then, MJ, wearing a checkered dress, dances into the panel. Deadpool waves to MJ and goes, Anyone up for a game of strip checkers? Who needs a car? When there's a party to go to, I can fly all the way. 
Okay, that was an odd leap. Al wasn't kidding. She is dumb as a post. I'm going to get so lucky. I would think she was high, to be honest with you. <laughs> Probably, high. right? I'd be like, you're all right, late. You, know, you need to sit down and get some glass of water. Uh, <laughs> and we pop back to the present where the GLA are being lambasted by some amusement park mascots. Weasel takes this especially poorly. Flatman offers him a massage. See, you get it? Flatman is gay. Oh, that's uh, what they're getting at. That's that's a comedy joke oh. in 1997. There you go. Oh, God, that makes sense now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, back in the past and back at the party, MJ is digging the tunes and want to dance. Deadpool would rather some alone time with Weasel so that he can get his belt fixed and vamoose when the clock strikes 12. These tunes are hot. Mary Jane say, let's not waste that beat, Pete. Uh, no, thanks, Toots. I uh, can't. Uh, my hernia scar is starting to unknit. Uh, maybe later. Deadpool asked Jack if they could do the belt thing. Uh, he's still miffed at about futzing with the experiment for Osborne Chemical. Plus, now that he's within smelling distance of Gwen Stacy, he's not going to waste the opportunity to get a bit closer. So he asks her to dance. And not wanting Mary Jane to hog all the attention on the dance floor, she accepts much the annoyance of Mary Jane. Now the gang watches the dancing while Deadpool considers maybe working uh, Harry to get Weasel a gig at Osborne's. Before he can, though, he's interrupted. Again? Yes, uh, this time by Craven the Hunter crashing through the wall. Craven says, If you value your lives, don't anyone move. The son of Norman Osborne is here, and I want him. I don't think I don't think Harry has ever heard that before, so this is a pretty big time here. Uh, now Deadpool does the whole Clark Kent thing. He fakes that he's scared so he can sneak away yeah, says, to us. Uh, I love it. It's yeah. <laughs> now uh, Craven nabs Harry and leaves the party, but runs right into Deadpool. Turns out the party is right next door to a construction site. Sure. <laughs> like right outside the the wall is a construction site, yeah. uh, and a fight is on. Now, this fight is basically a panel-for-panel panel recreation of the fight between Spider-Man and Kraven from Amazing Spider-Man number 47, with Deadpool gumped over Spider-Man's body. Yeah, it's nice that, nice that it actually worked quite well for the form, oh, yeah. don't you think? You know, it's almost, <laughs> almost as if the costume was uh, taken from... Derivative. Derivative, <laughs> anyway. Now, while the battle rages, Norman Osborn enters a cab. When he learns from the cabbie that Kraven is running amok in Midtown, he has to be taken there. Even triple in the hacks fair to do so. Back to the battleground, Craven blasts Deadpool with his nipple rays and proceeds to pummel our pal to pudding. Tootie? Wait, Joe's having trouble in the van? Get, get Mrs. Garrett. Norman pulls up and checks on his boy. Uh, Craven then thwops him with a rope and pulls him up to the construction rigging. He wants to be paid back for everything the, gob the goblin took from him. Norman hasn't the foggiest idea what is going on about. At this point in Spider-Man history, Norman has forgotten he was ever the Green Goblin, but don't worry, he'll eventually remember. Gwen Stacy will fall off the Brooklyn Bridge. Everything will work out just the way you want it to. Just the way it's supposed to. Uh, Deadpool's healing factor finally kicks in, and he's ticked. Time stream or not, this is Craven's last freaking hunt. He swings in George the Jungle style and kicks Raven in the head, which makes Craven let go of the rope that was holding Norman. Looks like Deadpool's in one of those classic Spider-Man quandaries. Does he continue fighting the bad guy or save the civilian? And with great power and all that jazz, or just not wanting to mess with the time stream, Deadpool chose, chose the latter and saves Norman before he goes splat. Uh, Norman asks how he could ever repay our man, at which time Deadpool spills the beans about Osborne chemical candidate Jack Hammer's Quote, habits 
Now, when Jack checks in with Norman, uh, the old man suggests he check himself into a rehab clinic to deal with his addictions. Uh, then, the real Peter Parker shows up, and he's confused by how everyone is speaking to him like he'd been there the whole time. <laughs> so I really laughed at that. It was so ridiculous. Uh, we, re we rejoin Jack as he skulks away. He meets up with Deadpool as Pete again, with the hologram on him, in a dark alley, and proceeds to get stinking drunk. Mm -hmm. After a brief uh, check-in on the present, we rejoin Blind Al, who's wearing some comfy flannel jammies, which are going to give her hives. Yeah. Uh, Anna Watson leaves her be, at which time she begins thinking about what might happen should Wade be unsuccessful. It's funny. I've been a prisoner of Wade's for years, suffered all forms of indignity, but I never considered death a positive alternative to my solution. But tomorrow... I chew carbon monoxide big time. Moments later, Deadpool arrives for the rescue and accidentally gets a peek at some of Al's parts. Um, we see young Weasel, now rip-roaringly drunk, return home to tell his folks he's dropping out of college and he's off to Tijuana. And all's well that ends well. <laughs> now back in the present, they're all preparing for Wade's return, and Flatman is still gay, don't forget. Sure. Uh, Deadpool and Al emerge from Doorman leaving the rest of the GLA and Weasel covered in pink goop. After a brief meet-and-greet, Deadpool's itching to get away because he left the Great Lakes Avengers with a bandolier full of splody grenades. They all go boom, but unfortunately the GLA gets better. Uh, yeah, the issue ends with the Watcher, who's finally having himself an unclench. That's right. I, I had forgotten by that point that he was watching the whole thing. But it does, <laughs> I know, me too. It added another level of, uh, you know, Marvel ridiculousness Cosmic awareness. It, so yes. I... I uh, <laughs> You know, I'm just gonna. I'll start. I'll say I really enjoyed this issue. I had a great time with it. It was. Oh, it, was a blast. Uh, it was. You know, had a little bit of the classic Marvel tropes in it, and poking some satire there. Some, you know, definitely sophomoric humor, but you know, making fun of the Osborns' hair never gets old <laughs> for me. Uh, no. And uh, you know, I thought I thought it was a good, good fun. Well done. I loved how uh, Woods went. You know, from his very unique. You know. Very obvious style in the present day, but then he went back in time. He was able to mimic Ramita's style. Okay, mm -hmm. you know he, 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 sure. got, he got the job done. You, you understood what was happening. The tone was there for sure. Exactly, yeah. and he definitely went thinner on the pen line and everything. So uh, I, I had a great fun. What, what, I know you read this before. What did you think, though? Uh, you know, I, I was saying this earlier off the air, but I, the last time I read this was probably when it came out in 97, or maybe maybe I reread it, you know, 98, 99, but I was shocked at how well it, it you know, it, it yeah. stands up. It's just such such a fun issue. It uh, really stands the test of time, and uh, I, I'm not really big on where Deadpool's at now, so I didn't know if that would kind of mess with my, my reception of this issue, but... Oh, I had a blast. Loved it. Yeah. You know, there's something about uh, Deadpool is not making jokes as much as his whole attitude, his whole errant, flippant attitude is sort of funny yeah. the whole time. There are some obvious, you know, obvious jokes, but in general, he's just like one of these guys, you know, uh, comedy guys is living in the moment to the extent of not caring about imminent disaster all around him and stuff <laughs> like that. And yep. uh, yeah, I enjoyed the heck out of it. So I would give this. Whatever, yeah, five out of fifteen treadmills. I don't know how do we do that anyway. Uh, <laughs> so that's that issue, folks. But we have definitely more of the show to come. We're gonna wrap up our creator bios, talk a little bit about about Deadpool, and we're gonna talk about other superheroes that have also broken the fourth wall in comic books. Right after the break.
Acting's Joe Kelly. You might know me from this video, various internet interviews, or perhaps my 1.5 seconds on Celebrity Apprentice. But I'm not here to talk about any of that. I'm here to talk about... That's right, free... So what exactly are comic books, and why would they be free? Suspicious? You should be. But allow me to allay your fears and teach you a thing or two. Comic books, also known as comics, have been around for millions and billions of years. They are the combination of words and pictures used to tell a story. Wildly talented writers like myself provide the words, often called a script. That script is then handed to an army of crazed individuals known as artists. I don't honestly know what they do after that point. I just know suddenly a comic book shows up. So, you know, go talk to one of them. You may be asking yourself at this point, why do I want to read comics? Well, let me tell you what comics can offer you. Number one, comics involves reading and studies show that reading helps kids learn to read. I hate reading. Me three. Reading is quite enjoyable, indeed. Have a teenager in your life that seems addicted to everything with a screen? Try a comic. There's more than 140 characters? And the pictures aren't a food? Isn't she precious? And one of the best ways to experience a comic book is to get it for free. That happens this May 4th. You heard it right. Free comic book day. Some people believe it's a hobby that requires millions of dollars or the donation of tens of dozens of pints of blood to get involved with. I can guarantee you neither of those are true. And please hold on to your blood. You're going to need it. Because this May 4th, you're going to your local comic shop for free comic book day. Hang out with cool people, read cool books, and fly your freak flag, baby. It's free comic book day. Come on down. Welcome back, everybody. We are going to wrap up a little bit about uh, the character Deadpool and uh, tell you where he went from this point at issue 11. Now, Joe Kelly's run featured a lot of misdirection about Wade's forgotten past. It was pretty interesting. Zigged when many readers feel like it was going to zag. Yeah, they made it where like he was like a hippie, uh -huh. like living on like a living on like a collective. And uh, then they, they swapped it to where that was a different guy. It was it got really, really heady, surprisingly so. I, and yeah, wanted, but it was engaging. It's not like you wanted to keep it, you know, under, you know, secret or keep it elusive. And it actually sure. worked for once. It wasn't like Telegraph from the uh, first minute. Uh, after Joe Kelly left the title, Christopher Priest took over writing chores. And his opening scene featured Deadpool visiting a trailer park full of characters who had suffered the Priest curse. Which is to say they were canceled with the quickness once Priest took over. Characters included Power Man and Iron Fist, Kazar, Moon Knight, Black Panther, Steel, yeah, that's Steel, uh, Milestone, a character Icon, Hawkman, we're crossing, crossing uh, publisher boundaries here, The Ray, a Greed Lantern, Solar Man of the Atom, and Goat from Quantum and Woody. <laughs> yes. Uh, he also threw out a giant bag labeled Everything That Made This Book Work. <laughs> During this run, Deadpool's disfigured face gets fixed, and he bears a striking resemblance to Tom Cruise. Uh, Tom C-R-U-Z. Uh, we don't want to get sued Chris, here. Yeah. Yeah, Chris, <laughs> yeah. 
uh, and he also met Lobo, sort of, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. On a, in a, an odd Deadpool space adventure, he meets what is basically Lobo with a different name. It's, yeah. it's pretty funny. Fakey Lobo. That's cool. <laughs> now, later in the series, Deadpool started shipping with Marvel's famous double numbering. Uh, got a new number one with issue 57, where, you know, they're both on the book at the same time. Oh, God. Uh, they did this a couple of times. It was every time they started a story arc. I think there were either two or three story arcs of four issues each that went to the one through four numbering with the actual legacy quote-unquote numbering underneath wow. it. Um, and they did a riff on the uh, death and return of Superman. They did, uh, like, Funeral for a Freak instead of Funeral for a Friend, where there were uh, four fake Deadpools that showed up. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, it was pretty neat. Um, what, was there a leather jacket, cool, young Deadpool? I don't recall. I'm a, I think I need to look into this. Sounds good <laughs> yes. to me. Now, the uh, final writer on the first ongoing was Gail Simone, who reined in a bit of the fourth wall breaking and uh, would segue Deadpool into uh, the new and reportedly Liefeld royalty-free title, Agent X. Uh, we say that because at the same time, other properties with Liefeld fingerprints on it were also retitled. Uh, Cable became Soldier X, and X Force became Ecstatics. Yeah, they uh, they kind of Xed about, and you know, I, you know, yes. I, I've heard Liefeld, Liefeld say about this that it's irrelevant because his royalties kicked in at a number that the comic never reached anyway. Yeah, that's what I hear. But it's you know, I gotta say, it looks pretty obvious they were trying to. You it know, seems petty, yeah. The deal, but anyway. <laughs> Now, uh, Agent X would run 15 issues, wrapping up in early 2004, and then Deadpool, uh, as as far as an ongoing series, went on the shelf until 2008. Wow. At which time, Daniel Way took over the writing chores, and uh, it sucked. It wasn't very good. I've heard that, and I've never read that one, but i got to say, in this day and age, four years without any Deadpool comics sounds Could like— Could you imagine? Sounds like there must have been, like, a, uh, you know, cat catastrophe in the world or something. I <laughs> yes. got it crazy. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, suffice it to say, from this point on, the Marvel straps several rockets to the property, and more often than not, he's got three or four ongoing series running concurrently. Uh, because fans need to ruin everything, Deadpool was confirmed as being pansexual via a tweet from writer Jerry Dugan. Why are we even thinking about Deadpool's sexuality? It, really, I mean, is this really a character we want to think about yeah. having sex? I mean, it's just sort of a, uh, it's like thinking of Bugs Bunny having sex or something. Mm -hmm. Fabian Nicieza says, not trying to be dismissive, but readers always want to make a character their own. And often that is to the exclusion of what a character might mean to other fans. I've been dogged with DP sexuality questions for years. It is a bit tiring. And Fabian's thought is that Deadpool is whatever you want him to be, which I think is... Well, that's what I would say too. I mean, like like yep. I say, it's the Bugs Bunny thing. If he, if he, if it suits the joke to put him in a dress and give a guy a big smooch, he'll do that, you know. And there you if go. it's if it's you know commenting on a girl's can is shagarific, he'll do that. <laughs> uh, a Deadpool video game was released on PlayStation Three and Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty in two thousand and thirteen, developed by High Moon Studios and published by Activision. It was a later remastered. It was later remastered for PlayStation Four and Xbox One. And, uh, oh, right, there was that feature film released in February 2016 starring Ryan Reynolds that broke all sorts of box office records. So that, that gave the property a little shot in the arm, too, as I recall. I think maybe. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, over to Joe Kelly. In uh, 1997, Kelly also became the writer of Daredevil, 
on which he was accompanied by well-known uh, Daredevil artist Gene Colan. It's a weird thinking of Gene Colan doing comics in the late 90s. I know. It really is. But, hey, man, the hand still works. Why not? Sure. Why not? Uh, Kelly produced a, a Daredevil slash Deadpool 97 annual. This uh, late late 90s Marvel annuals were usually mixed. Uh-huh. So you'd have, like, an X-Men slash Fantastic Four 1998 or something like All that. Right. Um, now, this was with artist Bernard Chang, which pitted the two characters against each other. Uh, Kelly left Daredevil with issue 375 in 1998, just as they, just they were as they were winding it down to be rebooted. Uh, in late 1997, Kelly began writing uh, Marvel's best-selling title, X-Men, with Carlos Pacheco on art. Uh, Kelly stint on the title, and his friend Stephen T. Siegel's run on, his, on the sister title Uncanny X-Men was cut short when the creators quit, blaming constant editorial interference. Which is uh, one of those really, really good ways of having a middling run described as the best ever. Of course, you know, what might have been, it might have been the greatest X-Men story ever written, yeah. They were were better than what we were getting before, but... Nothing especially brilliant, but yeah, uh, who knows? you know how it goes. Um, Kelly's last issue was number 85 in 1999. Joe says, to put it concisely, the editors had a certain vision about the X-Men and the way they should be written. We had a, we had a different vision. As a result, the final project fell somewhere in the middle and therefore short for both sides. We left because we didn't want to do half-baked work. Seems this way. This these days, editorial just doesn't want Marvel to publish an X Men title. That's so. it. Yeah, that makes <laughs> it go. actually a lot easier if you think about it. It does. Don't write uh, that. <laughs> now Joe would continue and say, Steve and I were told that we weren't going to be involved in the long term planning and outlining of the next story arc, but we were still expected to write the issues based on someone else's template. If that had always been the case, we were, we, if we were day players on the X Men from the beginning, this wouldn't be such a big deal. However, in light of the events leading up to it, it was obvious that this was a last-ditch effort to try and, quote, fix something that was way too broken. So we left. Eh, fair enough. Deadpool sure. was due to be canceled itself with February in, uh, with number 25. That would have been, or ended up being the February 1999 cover date. Uh, but a write-in-an-internet campaign by fans led Marvel to reverse their decision. This wasn't the first time that had happened, but this is uh, the biggest Deadpool moment, right, for... <laughs> fan uh, fan service Fan outcry, yeah uh, Like we said, he eventually did leave the title anyway With uh, issue 33, October 1999 In 1999, Kelly began producing M-Rex with penciler Duncan Rouleau Which is was published by the now-defunct Avalon Studios That ran for two issues uh, Same year, Kelly began writing for DC Comics Starting with Action Comics number 760 That had an October 1999 cover date during this run, he authored What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way in Action Comics number 775, March 2001, cover date, which introduced the Elite, a team of anti-heroes, and their leader, Manchester Black. That issue was called The Single Best Issue of a Comic Book Written in the Year 2001 by Wizard Magazine. Not very punchy with their award titles, are they, huh? Uh, It was a reaction to the realistic darkening and seriousness of comics that was increasingly more common as we go into the 21st century. Uh, The Elite was an obvious allusion to Wildstorm's anti-hero team, The Authority. Very much. I mean, (laughs) it's almost a one-to-one allusion right there. Uh, Joe says, even though superheroes dominate the American market, there's so much interesting stuff going on in other genres and indie books, I don't think it's fair for me to identify a trend. That said, I think the big companies certainly know who they're marketing their books to, and a large segment of that audience tends to like their heroes a little edgier. 
I certainly fall into that land. So if there's a trend towards anti-heroes or darker material, it's almost explicitly market-driven, not to mention short-sighted. We're not, we're, going, we're not going to get new readers, aka kids, if every book is about classic superheroes being dissected and darkened. By no means do I think it's every superhero book should be vanilla ice cream, but there's a reason that we all fell in love with comics when we were young. They addressed plenty of social issues and had a lot to say about the world at large, but as a whole, they weren't bleak. It's that lack of hope that I find troublesome, and the idea that superheroes and the ideals they represent are corny. Fiction can serve many functions, and doling out hope and inspiration 22 pages at a time isn't a bad thing at all. And it's funny that Wizard gave him that uh, gave him that award, but they're almost wholly responsible for fostering that fanboy attitude of the turn of the century where, you know, Superman was corny. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that was the wizard line of thought. Um I I, I think the issue is a little bit overrated, that seven seventy five. Um yeah. it's certainly good, but uh I don't think I would I don't think I would hold it up against a whole lot. Um it's, it's not a I, I it's it's totally a commentary story. You know what I mean? It is. It and, is. It's... You know, whether you think the commentary is, is worthwhile or not, that's all it is really. As a singular story, it's not really that awesome. It's all right. No, it's like when you see like an actor take a take a particularly challenging role and you, and people call it like Oscar bait. Yeah. Uh, in comics, when you write something that's discussing the craft or the industry or trying to, you know, take things apart, that's almost like what you'd call, like, Oz, I, Eisner bait, maybe? Yeah, no, you're right. You are totally right. Uh, <laughs> and that that's what, first reading 775, I'm like, oh, this is really this is really trying to get eyes, is basically it. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I agree with you with that. Now, uh, Manchester Black, he uh, he loomed somewhat uh, large in the DC Universe and actually recently showed up in Action Comics in 2017. Uh, about Manchester Black, Joe recalls, Manchester was directly inspired by my perception that a lot of the anti-establishment slash anti-hero slash postmodern comic books were being written by English authors. So I thought the leader of the elite had to be English. Kind of a uh, Warren Ellisy. Uh, yeah, definitely. Kind of, <laughs> kind of like Warren Ellis by way of Alan Moore, and you know, with the yeah. hair. But yeah, sort of that. Now uh, Kelly produced the creator-owned title Steampunk, penciled by Chris Bocciolo and published by DC through uh, Wildstorm's Cliffhanger imprint in twenty in two thousand. So DC's imprint, Wildstorm's imprint. <laughs> cliffhanger. I love it. I love Wildstorm. It's is one of the most interesting companies we've ever talked. It about. is. <laughs> now in uh, December two thousand, Kelly had a short stint as writer on the, the Superboy comic, from issues eighty three to ninety three. This is the Conel clone Superboy. Right. Uh, again, mostly working with his action. Comics collaborator Pasquale Ferry. In 2002, he began a long run on DC's JLA title from 61 through 93 uh, with a penciler Doug Monkey. Uh, after their run on the title finished, the same creative team launched a 12 issue limited series that this one came out of JLA number 100. It was called Justice League Elite yeah. and featured some of the characters from Action Comics 775. <laughs> Uh, also in 2002, DC published Green Lantern Legacy, the last will and testament of Hal Jordan, a hardcover graphic novel by Kelly and artist Brent Anderson and Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, this was a Hal Jordan as Spectre story. Early in his career, Kelly described working with Sienkiewicz as a dream collaboration. Which he, which and, uh, he, as well he should. I've never read this, by the way, yeah. this uh, graphic novel. I never read that. 
it was always on my radar because at this point, you know, we were we were in Kyle land. So anything right. with Hal's name on it got a certain amount of a uh, certain amount of attention and just as a novelty. Right. But I never got around to it. Yeah, I think I might want to take uh, a look. But anyway. Yeah, um, Kelly would stay on Action Comics for almost five years until issue 813. This is May 2004 cover date. Um, working mainly with that same penciler, uh, Mr. Pasquale Ferry. Yeah, it's like the dream team. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2004, Kelly produced Ballast with penciler Ilya, uh, a one-shot sure. published by Active Images. <laughs> that same year, Joe Kelly collaborated with artist Ariel Olivetti on Space Ghost series published by DC. This is a serious look at the Hanna-Barbera cartoon character, and it looks gorgeous, let me tell you right now. It, I mean, it's beautiful. It is a beautiful book. That's, that's uh, something you've got to say about it. Kelly is part of the Man of Action Collective. In fact, he's a founding member, along with Joe Casey, Duncan Rollo, and Stephen T. Siegel, who created the series Ben 10. Uh, the cartoon series began airing on Cartoon Network in 2005, and just uh, found out yesterday, I've never seen Ben 10, but it's rebooting this year. It, there's another new hey. Ben 10 series, so great. And I know the other one, I think it, it ran from 2005 until like last year, so there hasn't been oh, a big... Wow. Yeah, it, it's it's very popular if you know what it is, and I don't, but sure. there it is. <laughs> Around the same time Ben 10 began to air, he was also hired as a story editor on the cartoon TMNT Fast Forward. With Man of Action Studios, he was also a supervising producer on Disney Marvel's Disney XD animated series Ultimate Spider-Man. In 2007, he shot a short film, Brothers Day, which was a selection in the Brooklyn International Film Festival. He has published creator-owned work through Image Comics, including Four Eyes, beginning 2008, and I Kill Giants, also beginning 2008, as well as a graphic novel, Douglas Fredericks and the House of They, in 2009. Currently, Joe teaches writing for animation and writing for comics at his alma mater, New York University Tisch School of the Arts, and I'm pretty sure he's married with at least one kid, but that's... Not important for the uh, what yep. we what we do here. And I, I would not mind him coming back to do uh, to do some work. No, I, <laughs> I know he did uh, he did this Spider Man uh, Deadpool buddy book. Uh, he did like the first arc of that with was uh, might have been with Ed McGinnis actually. Oh really? Like, bring, yeah. Bring them back together. Uh, yeah. He's I not mean, on it now though. I get the impression that he can write his own ticket if he wanted to write for DC or Marvel. They would welcome him or back. Or TV. Or yep. TV. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, he's he's doing yeah. what, what he wants. So. Who knows, but uh, I've definitely, you know, I like this issue. I, I like a lot of his stuff in JLA. I think that's where I know mm -hmm. him best. And, yep. uh, you know, he's definitely a good writer. You know, something sure. we talked about not long ago, was it yesterday, even, Chris, uh, <laughs> about pacing in comics? Yes. And yes. Uh, how much that good storytelling goes a long way and understanding when the beats have to land and things like that. And that's something Joe Kelly definitely knows the nuts and bolts of, so... Definitely. Uh, it's enjoyable. Anyway, let's move on. We'll hop across the table to Pete Woods here. In uh, 2000, DC Comics picked up Pete Woods for a four-year stint on Robin uh, from uh, the year 2000 to 2004, uh, mostly written by Chuck Dixon. Uh, an exclusive contract followed in 2001. In uh, 2002, Woods partnered with other Portland, Oregon area artists and formed Mercury Studio. Mercury Studio increased in membership and changed its name to Periscope Studios in June 2007. Woods became one of the artists in the Superman family of titles, working on the new Krypton arc in Action Comics from uh, 2008 to 2009, and the last stand of new Krypton miniseries in 2010. Uh, he returned to Action Comics uh, proper in 2010 alongside writer Paul Cornell, and that was when it was the uh, Lex Luthor's Action Comics. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. 
Now, in uh, 2011, he would draw Justice League of America's Vibe. This is New 52, written by uh, Jeff Johns and Andrew Kreisberg. Uh, He's currently working on Hero Killers for Dynamite Entertainment with Ryan Brown. Uh, He also uh, currently draws Archie for Archie Comics, written by Mark Wade. Yeah, the the cool uh, Archie, not the... The yeah, not the, Archie, the classic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not the not the tic tac toe head off. Right, exactly. Uh, <laughs> now Woods met his wife Rebecca while working for Wildstorm, and she's also a member of the collective Periscope Studios. Yeah, and uh, you know, I did read a couple of interviews, I don't know why I didn't slip them in here, but he, he says that he doesn't have an exclusive contract, but he thinks that the time for exclusive contracts has passed. It's not as necessary. I think if you are someone with Billy with his uh, pedigree, then you probably don't need a contract. That that's probably yeah. more of the story. But yeah, he's uh, sounds like he's also writing his own ticket, does what he wants to do, and that's absolutely wonderful to see for someone so seasoned. Now for our extra hook for the episode or whatever, we're going to talk about uh, comics, uh, characters, and comics that also are known to break the fourth wall. You know, Deadpool doesn't really break the fourth wall too much in this issue Not we this just issue. read. That's more or less the what his thing is now Is he constantly addresses the readers Is aware of his being in a comic And uh, this is sort of a Often tread trope in the world of uh, Comics Now uh, during the golden age Many comics, superhero and crime among them They'd end with the main character Turning towards the audience to run down how cowardly Criminals are, you know, remember kids Mm -hmm. Criminals are nothing without their guns Or whatever, brush your teeth And chomp criminals' ankles uh, nearly every pre-crisis issue of Superman ended with him delivering a wink at the audience. Uh, did it seem time. like that? It really did. Definitely <laughs> in the golden age, just like or buy war bonds, kid. You know what I mean? Uh, that was so. That was sort of always breaking the fourth wall at the very end. But really, we're talking about people that do it satiristically or you know for uh, comedic effect. And we're going to start with Cerebus the Aardvark. This guy was created by Dave Sin, began publication in December 1977, and it's still cranking out comics today. There's a new one, Cerebus Goes to Hell, being yep. uh, churned out, so I would, that's not, it, you know, it, that was one, when I, when I was looking at the run, I was like, saw one that it was, you know, 1977 to 2004, then it was 1977 to 2007. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? <laughs> just, just face it, it's not ending. It'll end when Dave Sims, you know, croaks. That's it. Um, Dave Sim, sorry. He's an anthropomorphic, <laughs> anthropomorphic aardvark, initially based on Conan the Barbarian, sort of-ish, but eventually moving through several literary genres. In issue 193, April 1995, cover date, Cerebus began hearing a voice in his head calling itself Dave. This is the voice of Dave Sim, his own creator. Dave spoke to him, giving him advice and showing Cerebus alternate futures to help him decide his fate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got Ambush Bug First appeared in DC Comics Presents Number 52, December 1982 Cover date, created by Keith Giffen Erwin uh, Schwab is a guy in a full body Costume with antenna Can teleport into, uh, to a little bug shaped receivers With a pop uh, Pretty much uh, DC's answer to Deadpool Before there even That's was a That's right, before the question was asked he was there <laughs> Yes, uh, now uh, he, You know, certain, some uh some examples here, he he one time asked Zatanna why her text balloons are written backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also traveled uh, back in time a few pages yep. during the Stocking Stuffer special. Uh, most of his miniseries satirized other comics issues and genres, uh, and he would regularly address his creators from the comic page itself. That's right. There's even a whole chunk. I forget. I can't remember which it's in. It might be the Stocking Stuffer or any one of the crazy ambush book comics, but they basically do the Daffy Duck shtick on him. 
yeah. right? Where they keep erasing parts of him and like things, drawing yeah. things next to him. So yeah, they had a good time. Uh, that's one of my favorites, and here's another one of my favorites. I think you see where this is really up my alley here, Chris. This is my <laughs> kind of comics. Yes. Sensational She-Hulk first appeared in Savage She-Hulk number one, February 1980, covered eight by Stanley and John Buscema. This is lawyer Jennifer Walters gets a blood transfusion from her cousin Bruce Banner, and then she gains some hulky powers. During uh, originally, she was just she turned into the Savage She-Hulk and went berserk. That was her thing for a little while, but. Uh, during John Burns' time on She-Hulk in 1989, that's when she became sensational. The character was aware she was in a comic book, and she would address John, as well as editor Louise Simonson, quite regularly. From time to time, she would even address and threaten the reader. Uh, I wonder if she ever managed to tear up anybody's X-Men comics. <laughs> that was issued nine or I think of ten or something. Yeah, I think so. Buy this comment, or I'll or I'll, or I'll shred. I'll come to your house and. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also exploited comic book tropes. Uh, for instance, She-Hulk would travel great distances by walking out of one comic panel and into another. That was nice and convenient. Absolutely. Uh, Animal Man uh, first appeared in Strange Adventure number 180, September 1965, cover date by Dave Wood and Carmine Infantino. Movie stuntman Buddy Baker has animal-based powers given to him by aliens. Uh, during the Grant Morrison run, which was September of 88 through August of 90, drawn by Chaz Trog and Doug Hazelwood, we get the iconic scene where Animal Man looks at the reader and exclaims that he can see us. This was issue 19 uh, from January. Uh, also during the run, uh, the Psycho Pirate plays a, a sizable role toward the end when they were trying to undo the Crisis on Infinite Earths, and uh, yeah. the, the pirate looks to the readers and calls us perverts for watching. Uh, he, he also instructs that all the heroes who died in the Crisis on Infinite Earths, who were on their way back through this odd conflux of whatever, uh, he instructs them to completely tear the fourth wall down to kill everyone reading. Oh, well, that's nice. Uh, that's a, that's sort of how the you know world started started to undo itself. Mm. Uh, the post crisis world, you know, the, the things started, the cracks started to show, and this was all part of it. Was a psycho pirate. Anyway, Superboy Prime, maybe the only one to actually break that fourth wall. <laughs> literally, uh, literally, he first appeared in DC Comics Presents number eighty-seven. That was November nineteen eighty-five. Cover date by Elliot S. Magan and Kurt Swan. Uh, the Clark Kent of Earth Prime. That's like our actual Earth. You know, is the idea, but he turns out to be Superboy anyway and helps out during Crisis of Infinite Earths. Because he's the only hero in that world. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah, and they they know of heroes. They read comics about heroes. Yeah, there's a there's a lot more to this uh, character, but uh, yeah, it's right. He's the only hero. But eventually, as a reward for helping out in Crisis, he's locked <laughs> away in a paradise dimension with a few other characters, where he goes a little batty there. And to kick off 2005's Infinite Crisis, he gets so mad at the darkening of the comic book universe and everyone existing without him that he punches reality, shattering it and changing much of the status quo. Among many other things, he like, well, we hope everyone remembers he restores Red Hood. Uh, Jason yeah, Todd Jason comes Todd. back as Red Hood, but also like messes with Donna Troy's origin again, and everyone gets all and, messed up. And like up. all the all the Doom Patrol stuff falls into falls into place. Like everything happened. Yeah, everything. That's what yep. it's like. Everything had had to happen at once or whatever. It's it gets crazy anyway. <laughs> Now we'll pop over to Vertigo and talk about Jack Horner, uh, featured as a, in a spinoff of Fables. This is Jack of Fables, began in 2006, written by Bill Willingham and Matthew now Lila Sturgis. Uh, he's little Jack Horner, sitting in a corner, <laughs> as well as Jack B. Nimble and pretty much every Jack in, in fairy tales. I think he's got a beanstalk as well. Right. Uh, <laughs> 
His narration would address the reader directly, and eventually he met the personification of the fourth wall, called Eliza Wall. That's a, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't think her name be Eliza, but sure, why not? That's a fun. Why not? Uh, here's one. Should have been Danny the Wall. That, that would have made actually that would have been kind of <laughs> cool, really like crossover. Uh, last one we dug up, and this one I can't claim to have a lot of personal. I did watch the movie, but uh, Scott Pilgrim, created by Brian O'Malley, ran in a manga-style digest form from August 2004 to July 2010. Scott Pilgrim's a slacker uh, and a Canadian and part-time musician who lives in Toronto and plays bass guitar in a band. Though characters would never address the reader directly in this one, they seemed aware they were in a comic book. Uh, for example, when his love interest Ramona Flowers asked Scott about his job, he said he would explain it in Volume 3. And uh, also, while fighting Ramona's vegan boyfriend, Todd, Scott wished for a deus ex machina right before one appeared in the form of the vegan police. And also, that fight is interrupted by someone with a vegan recipe. So, uh, sounds like fun. Wouldn't mind. Glad I missed that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) That does not seem appealing to me. So, uh, yeah. So, I'm sure people have other ones. But right now, we're going to do something we've been threatening to do for a few weeks. Yes, and read listener, some of this, mail. listener mail. Uh, why don't you kick it off here, Chris? Sure. We'll start with uh, Darren from the uh, RAD Adventures Network, the Rad Adventures Network. And then this is an old email, <laughs> so we apologize yeah. for our delay. <laughs> they write, Hi, Chris and Reggie. We really loved your ElfQuest episode, which was episode 50, uh, 50, 38, <laughs> now available in the archives. Ruth and I are also fans of the series and collected the issues in the back issue bins years ago, just like you. We have never heard the story of how Wendy and Richard Peeney met, so thanks for sharing that. Remember, they met in an, in, a, in the letters column of the Silver Surfer. Right, Sanford. yeah, when he used to publish uh, your address uh, and everything. Yes. Uh, also, we loved hearing the story of how Chris was lured into comics through ElfQuest, the great origin story. It was hilarious when Reggie said, now your wife knows what to blame. <laughs> I'll share an example of us being longtime fans of ElfQuest. When we were trying to think of a name for our podcast network, we remembered the name of the Peony's company, and just as R- Wendy and Richard Peony, you know, Warp, W-A-R-P, our name became Ruth and Darren, R-A-D. Thanks for another great episode, <laughs> Darren. Thanks. Thanks very much, Darren. And yeah, we had a great Absolutely. time with that one. Uh, I especially liked your story of ElfQuest, and I think it... It gives a, gave a lot of background to how you perceive comics in general. You know, you, sure, uh, you, sure. you I think it gave you coming in that way gave you a broader look at what comics could be, and uh, that you kind of carry that right to these very episodes of the treadmill, Chris. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein wrote, uh, "I just finished the Millennium episode. That was Weird Comics History episode 23. That's in the archives as well." Uh, he and really enjoyed it. You both did a really great job of laying out the story, and I really enjoyed your commentary and thoughts about the series at the end of the episode. I know my brother and I bought the Millennium Comics and tie-ins, but I had very little memory of the story. After listening to your podcast, I understand why. The series had almost no impact in the DC Universe. It was really just a point-in-time event. Keep up the great work. Regards, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. And yeah, that was that was a good time, that one, too. We just, that you was, know, yep. uh What's funny about that is that you had first done that on your blog. Mm-hmm. You kind of had to live through that torture twice, but in another, in another <laughs> way, you were able to repurpose the pain. So yes. that was good. We had a good time. Like they say, no man escapes. That's man. right. 
<laughs> Another one from uh, Darren from Rad Adventures uh, writes, Hi, Chris and Reggie. I always enjoy your shows, but particularly like this week's episode featuring vampires. There's episode 45, Superman number 70, available in the archives. I thought I would take the opportunity to share some of my favorite vampire stories, including the excellent original Night Stalker movie with Darren McGavin, as well as the episode of the series that featured another vampire, the 1977 miniseries with Louis Jordan, Jordan, I believe, yeah. Jordan. Louis Jordan, which I remember watching on PBS with my parents. Uh, The 1979 film with Frank Langella, which I saw in the cinema when originally released. And every horror... Let me try that again. And every (laughs) horror... And every hammer horror film with Christopher Lee. Uh, All the classics in my mind. The 2000 film Shadow of the Vampire is another favorite. It retells the filming of the 1922 Nosferatu, but imagines that actor Max Schreck really is a vampire. Uh, The Tomb of Dracula was a favorite comic series I read as a kid, and I enjoyed rereading some of the early issues a a couple of years ago. That's all for now. Have a great weekend and a great holday. Darren. Thanks, Darren. Uh, You know, one of the things Chris and I have a lot of trouble with or struggle with when we do these uh, episodes through our research is... How much is too little? How much is too is yeah <laughs> too much? You know, we we desire to be as complete as possible, but we don't want to be boring, and also we don't want to go too far off comics. Sure. Uh, and this was definitely a case when I went through vampires. I mean, obviously there is a whole cottage industry. We we could stop doing this podcast and do a vampire podcast weekly with no trouble i think Daily. uh yeah i mean there's so much content and i definitely i know a lot of the movies you're talking about darren a lot of the things that uh i love that movie shadow of the vampire it's really well done where they it's it's like a, you know like he said a fake behind the scenes of nosferatu but they act like the actor that played nosferatu was a real vampire and they run into a lot of trouble of extras you know missing and stuff like that oh, okay. that it's 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 really it's really well done i really enjoyed it and uh, i love the uh, Bram Stoker Dracula from the 90s And I also love the original one, Bell Lugosi So this is all stuff that I, you know I was like, you know This could be a You know, multi-part list of Dracula movies <laughs> But let's just keep it to uh, the, the minimum So, but thank you very much, Darren And I, I we appreciate your Vampire enthusiasm I think my uh, my vampire movie watching is is all on uh, whatever Sven Gulli is showing. Oh yeah, <laughs> That's pretty much it. I don't uh, I don't really see very many movies. You know that about me. I, yeah. Uh, but I, when when Sven Gulli has something on, I'll sometimes watch it. Well, hopefully they'll show Blackula. That's a very good one. <laughs> very important movie in the Dracula vampire. Vital. Yeah. Uh, and the last one, last mail for the episode, we're gonna talk. We're gonna read here is from Matthew Downs. We just got this one not long ago. Uh, hey guys, happy belated 4th of July Just finished your episode on Savage Dragon Issue number 1, episode 46 In our archives Great work, I really enjoyed it Like Chris, I've been a Savage Dragon fan From the start of Image Comics I say it's great to walk down memory lane With your well-acted and described telling of issue number 1 That's too kind, and I mean that uh, I was gonna truly. say <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that Frank Darling's wife Had a little bit of New York accent uh, It seems like everyone had a little bit of a New York accent on our uh, When we read them <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it was great. Please keep up the great work, and I'm looking forward to the next trip on the Cosmic Treadmill. And thanks very much, Matt. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that episode. Uh, for for yeah. me, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, people must have gotten the idea that more or less when the image revolution happened, I stopped reading comics for quite a number of years. I was following trades. I was doing a little vertigo stuff in, in trades, 
and kept up with No Man's Land, but I don't think I went back to a comic until the early 2000s, just because I really didn't like the style, didn't, you know, a bunch of things were happening. Uh, going back to them, though, with, with you, Chris, and, and this is really, that's your time that you yeah. ramped up. You came into your own as a comics collector, so, and I know a lot of people now, that is their time, you know what I mean? And those characters are their versions of the characters, and it gives me a broader appreciation. And what I have to say is, uh, especially with a book like Savage Dragon, it's a high-quality book. Uh, sure. It looks really good. You know, everything is working pretty well. Uh, the storytelling, I wouldn't give it, you know, an A+, but it's it's... You can read it, you can figure out what's going on But, uh, so I definitely think That I was probably too dismissive At the same time I don't think it really is my Not your wheelhouse Not my total, I think that's the best way to put it Not really in my wheelhouse, but I I really do appreciate The opportunity to read these comics that uh, Otherwise I probably would have never even Given a, a second glance to So, uh We do have fun here, don't we, Chris? Every week But uh, if you would like to write to us Tell us about your favorite comics Talk to us about Deadpool About Gumping Maybe a little bit about Forrest Gump Sure, that's <laughs> fine uh, You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com Find us on Facebook at facebook.com Slash Cosmic T-Mill History We're on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill And my personal Twitter is at Reggie Reggie I'm at Ace Comics you can read our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com where we review uh, comics every week and daily writings from Chris on Chris is on infiniteearth.com. He reviews a different DC comic every day and uh, it's always spectacular. It's always got great commentary, got great panels. Uh, I, I gotta tell you, if you are having trouble finding old comics, what Chris's breakdowns really did they do the trick i'm telling you you don't need to read them you know what i mean if you don't feel like flipping through them just go to the site and see if he's done it already you did uh crisis in infinite earth number seven this week i did and that uh, was a very dense book that was you know what i mean he really had to break it out but if you if you read that it does it's unlike the cliff's notes it does substitute for the original text so thank you uh highly recommend you go check that out but i think that's all we got from this week chris you got anything else for him um, we'll uh, try to fit in some more mail, I guess, <laughs> in the coming weeks. Yeah, well, I, we still have a little bit. A uh, little we also bit. have a. Yeah, we saw this, We also have some iTunes reviews. I don't know if we'll uh, start reading some of those. But all uh, right, uh, yeah, you know, we got. I think we have seven now. I think so. so. Uh, thanks a lot, folks. Everyone, Absolutely, everyone leaving iTunes reviews. Chris and I are really not good at this. <laughs> we I, I, we listen to other podcasts. We see what they do, but we don't remember or can't bring ourselves to do the same thing. It's but, hard for us to ask. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so I you know, I feel like we're so new and like still so fresh that let people get their bearings. Let people decide for themselves whether they think we deserve a review, but it's so appreciated. Uh whatever Absolutely. all the feedback we're getting, we love it. And also every week through Twitter we love to hear your comic stories, your personal experiences with these comic books, and uh, I just can't thank you enough. It's It's been a great experience to uh, be running this thing, and next week, Chris, we will be at 50 episodes of Cosmic Treadmill. That's right. Uh, you can finally cash in on our uh, Cosmic Treadmill 401k. Yeah, my, my, I'm looking out the window now, and uh, there's an odd haze Uh-oh. in the sky. Is it looking maybe a little red out there? A little crimson, yeah. Mm, well, we're going to leave it there for now and pick it up again <laughs> next week. So uh, I'd like everyone to remember that life is like keeping it on the treadmill gumpishly.